2: Wake that ass up in the morning. The Breakfast Club.
0: Mm-hmm. Morning, everybody. It's DJ Envy, Angela Yee, Charlemagne God. We are the Breakfast Club. We got a special guest in the building a
2: queen, an icon
4: living. That's right,
0: Viola Davis. Welcome. Woo, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Good morning. Thank you so
4: much. Good morning. <laughs> How are you today? You know what? I'm pretty good. I'm well rested, I okay. feel
0: alive. There you go. Okay. Alert. Okay. Well, okay. thank
5: you for taking time to come and sit with us. This That's was a little, so exciting. Uh, it's little ragged to have show. You on the schedule of Viola <laughs> Davis finding me. Yes,
2: man. Yeah. Thank man you. This book is such a beautiful exploration of your, your inner child. Like yeah. when you started the journey of, of writing this book, did you know you would go on that journey with your inner child as well?
4: Yeah, that was the whole point mm-hmm. that I needed to find that inner child. And my inner child was one that needed both healing and and needed to be celebrated. hmm. She was a survivor as well as someone who you know held a lot of trauma but i felt like i had to explore it because we were at that period of time i wrote it during the pandemic Mm -hmm. you know the george floyd of it all the ahmaud aubrey breonna taylor of it all everything dealing with the covid with the election i felt like i was having a crisis of meaning and um it was my way of pressing the reset button just to understand, man, Viola, what are you supposed to do from here on out? Mm-hmm. It just was a big wake-up call, personally and, you know,
0: culturally. So that's why I wrote the book. I had to go back to the beginning of me. Did mm-hmm. you start during the pandemic, or this was something you were doing beforehand and you were just so many projects, you was like, I'll get to it. Oh, this was pandemic, this is what I want to do. Well, <laughs> I didn't want to do nothing
4: during the pandemic, <laughs> but
0: I did start
4: during the pandemic. I had just finished how to get away with murder. Mm-hmm. I literally just ended it that March. And then I started writing the book. It was something to do because otherwise I was going stir crazy. I wasn't the person who settled into to the pandemic. I felt everything that was going on around me and I felt the chaos of it. And I internalized it. So mm. this, this, book was great therapy
2: so when, when god made you sit still and you know during the pandemic what, what did you see about yourself that you hadn't saw in a while
4: i saw a lot of things i saw viola as a survivor mm-hmm. i saw um you know i i keep telling this story ad nauseum i know i i've told it a lot mm-hmm. but i've always said you gotta leave a legacy right mm-hmm. so i said you know it's life is like a relay race It's what you do with your dash of time and what great runner you pass that baton, you know, off to. You pass it on to the next generation. They pass it on to the person, you know, who's after them and after them. And I realized during the writing of the book is those great runners are you at a different age. Mm. The six-year-old who survives it and, you know, may survive it really messy, may have been inappropriate, Mm -hmm. but... She ran her leg of the race and passed the baton onto the 14-year-old Viola who said I want to be an actor. In the midst of all the poverty, the abuse, the bedwetting, the sexual abuse, all of that, she wanted to be an actor. She saw a way out. And 14-year-old passed it on to the 28-year-old who said, "You know what? I need therapy." because I want healthy relationships in my life. I want to be happier, Mm -hmm. and I don't know how to do that. And she passed it on to the 34-year-old Viola who got married, to the 44, 45-year-old Viola who then became a mom, and then now I'm 56, Mm -hmm. and I have the baton in my hand. And now what? Mm
1: -hmm.
4: You know, what am I supposed to do with this part of my life? Mm -hmm. Because I would say at 56, you're a little bit past midlife. (laughs) <laughs> so um, that's what I learned. It's like it's a constant reassessment of where do you want to be? what are your life? What do you want your life to sort of look like? And I keep coming back to this, because I know for, I know that I know that I know that the number one regret of the dying is they they didn't take risks. Mm-hmm. They didn't become their ideal self. I don't want anyone to think that I wasn't brave. And I think that sometimes people hold off braveness and courage because they don't want to risk failure and they don't want to risk shame. And I think you got to risk it. Mm. And um, that's been my biggest discovery
0: in writing the book. You say in the book that memories are powerful. Right. Mm -hmm. Some people like to forget memories because it's so painful and so hurtful. But it seems like you use it as inspiration to push yourself harder. Mm -hmm. Why is that? I think the pain, the trauma,
4: is equal to the joy and the peace in your life. I think that they're one and the same. I don't think that the pain and the trauma and the hard times are a detour from life. I think it's a part of life. And I think that when you refuse to lean in to all of it, is you refuse to become connected to yourself, And that's why no one can connect with anyone else. Mm. Because the only time we want to meet is with great stories of overcoming and winning. And then when someone feels like they're not overcoming and they're not winning and they're not waking up happy every day, then they feel like they need to hide in the closet, not come out, Mm. not open their mouths, not say anything. There's no one to share with. There's no sacred space to be you. I count it all joy. Now, when I say I count it all joy... (laughs) <laughs> it takes some time sometimes to count it all joy mm. but I do believe that it's all a part of life. I've been in too many spaces where I haven't been able to connect with people.
5: You just never know what people have gone through to get to where they are today which is why mm-hmm. a memoir like this where you were so open mm-hmm. and honest about everything it really helped us to see like where you you come from when you're acting and mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about your relationship with your parents yeah, because in this book you talk a lot about things that happened to you when you were a child. Uh, what did you realize while writing this book about like, your father and about your mother?
4: I realized they did the best they could with what they had. That's what I realized.
5: Because it's so hard to forgive your dad. I know, um, mm-hmm. you, know you talk about how abusive mm-hmm. he was to your yeah. mother and things that you had to witness. So was it hard for you to even forgive that?
4: Yeah. It is. Forgiveness is, to me, I, I, I feel like forgiveness and faith are equal in terms of they're the hardest things to achieve. Mm-hmm. The, 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 it's, it, they're so abstract. So it comes down to choice. I forgive for myself.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: I forgive because I don't want to carry that weight. The weight of vengefulness, of regret, and all of that, for me, it blocks everything from coming into your life. And I don't think that anyone wants to see a 60-year-old or hear a 60-year-old sitting in front of their therapist saying, I, you know, haven't been able to make my marriage work or this work in my life because what my dad did when I was five. Mm -hmm. At some point, your life becomes yours.
0: That's wild that you said that Mm -hmm. because my wife was up here the other day and she was like, you know, when she forgave, she forgave for herself. And I didn't understand it at first. Mm -hmm. Because most people think when you forgive you're forgiving the person that hurt you but it's actually to 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 not to to take away that pain from yourself so you don't have to deal with it anymore that is that what you saying when you say I forgive for myself well yeah that's part
4: of it I, I I I do believe it's a sort of prison and not to get too philosophical of course but I believe that when you get to the end of your life, you're not thinking about all the people that you hated and all the people that did you wrong. I don't think that you're thinking about that when you're taking your last breath. I just don't. I think all of that goes away, and I think everything comes into sharp focus, which is probably making amends, probably being with the people that you love, probably sewing everything up, probably holding someone's hands. But I don't think that we're thinking about all of that. I think that once again the only person you could save is yourself. That's the only thing that you could do. You can't keep backtracking as to what wrong someone did to you or whatever. You got to figure out how to heal that so that, you know, it's what I think I I you know what? I I posted it on my page. It's like you don't you haven't met all the people who are going to love you in That's your right. life yet. And so when you meet all these people who are going to love you, they do not want to meet a vengeful person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay? Because they're going to get the overflow of that vengefulness. As a matter of fact, they're not going to get the overflow of that vengefulness. They're going to get nothing. Mm -hmm. They're going to go so far with you, and then it's going to stop. I've been with those people. Mm -hmm. They're called emotionally unavailable.
2: Mm -hmm. I I love (laughs) how you... You know, held your father accountable, but also humanized him. Did you always see the humanity in him? Or was that something that happened as you got older with, you know, with the more work you did on yourself?
4: Absolutely. More Mm -hmm. work I did on myself, the more I saw his humanity, Mm -hmm. the more I could connect the dots. I thought, you know, I thought life was like a Disney movie. People are just good or bad. Mm -hmm. That's it. The evil villain who just comes out, just wants to destroy everyone. I didn't know that people acted because of specific memories, once again. Right. Mm-hmm. Trauma in their lives, they're people. And we really demonize black people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know. And a weird way where you
5: wouldn't even be doing what you're doing if all those things hadn't happened to you as a child. Absolutely. Because it was such an escape for you to be able to turn on the TV. You said it was Cicely Tyson, right, that you saw that made you even say, this is what I want to do.
4: Absolutely. That- That woman and that performance was everything. I remember the moment I saw that performance because it was like magic. It was like it was a magician pulling a rabbit out of the hat. If you've ever seen the performance, she aged from 18 to 110. (laughs) And you could not even believe it from the first frame of that. It was a miniseries. And literally the wind stopped blowing. (laughs) The sun came out, and I saw a portal, a way out of the poverty, the, the the trauma. I just felt like if I could do that, I could make a life. I think sometimes you got to see it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know everybody just puts faith on people, that, especially on us, especially on black folks. They that's all to, we had. I know. That's all we had. <laughs> and and But it's a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, you go up to young black kids who are coming from really challenging backgrounds, and people come up to them and say, you know, you could be what, who and what you, you want to be. You just have to dream big. And then once you make it, you come back. You bring your family up. You bring your community up. And I'm sure if that kid had a language, he would say, how?
2: That's right. That's
4: a lot. Right. You just throw, and then you got to work 10 times as hard. Mm-hmm. You throw all of that on their lap, and then at 15, if they can't even get, if 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 they can't achieve it at all, if they feel like they want to give up, then we just berate them. It's a lot that we put on them. So sometimes you got to see it. You got to hold it. You got to, somebody's got to throw you a rope.
0: They I was, do. I was going to uh, ask you, what was, you talk about Cicely, but what was some of your positive influences? Because- you know, you talk about, you know, your parents and, and how you looked at your dad. And you talked about, you know, going to the white mm-hmm. school and the white kids chasing you mm-hmm. home with bricks. And you talk about all those things. So what positive influence did you have? What was your safe haven as a kid if there wasn't? There there was no one safe haven.
4: For me, what life becomes about is how someone could take you from A to A+, plus, from A+, plus to D from D to F, you know, to, to M, to M to, you know, there are people who can carry you at different points in your life. Mm-hmm. It could be a teacher. Mm-hmm. It could be a parent. It could be a relative. It could be a stranger that gives you one word. I had a lot of teachers. Mm-hmm. Even the first teacher who looked at me, and he was an acting coach, who looked at me and told me I was beautiful. Mm-hmm. That meant a lot to me. It did. And the first person who just came into science class, because he was a teacher, and I called him in the middle of the day, he was an upward-bound teacher, and I said I was having a panic attack. He came to the school. He interrupted science class. He said, I want to see Viola. The science teacher said, you can't do that. He said, excuse me, sir, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. Anybody, anybody who throws you a rope and sees you and likes you. Mm. There is something about someone looking at you and liking you. Right.
5: Mm-hmm. And even you know? seeing your potential when you can't see it.
4: Absolutely. Because
5: sometimes you talk yourself out of things. Yeah. Right, because of fear. But then someone tells you, like, your science teacher, listen, you need to apply for this. You can do it. And you tell yourself, I can't do it. Why would they take me? Why would they accept me? But somebody else believing in you mm-hmm. and giving you the tools, like, you can't make excuses anymore after a while.
4: Absolutely. And when you have there are no words to describe, and you know what? Very seldom am I in a space, and I know y'all can say the same thing, mm-hmm. but am I in a space, special as a dark-skinned black woman, and could speak my truth about what that means, the isolation that, uh, of, of that experience, okay? Because it comes at you threefold. It comes at you through, yes, white America, It comes to you through the experience and the culture of America, and it comes to you through even black culture. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say it, because it's called colorism. It's its own different sect of racism, and it is destructive. Because what you tell women in general is that beauty is a value, which it's not. Listen, there's... I'm one of those people I think everybody's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I really do. I I don't talk about stuff like that. Even the so bullfrogs? I, I mean, <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> well, the bullfrogs, that's a different level. <laughs> there was some mean women. Agree inside. Shoot. But you consider it a value. And with someone who you feel has value, you pay attention to them. You pour into them. You think that they're smarter, more valuable, more everything. So when you go up to little chocolate girls who are darker than a paper bag and you're constantly telling them they're not as cute, they have bad hair, they have this, that you're putting negative connotations. And then you can now, you can literally Google people who seem to have had press conferences to talk about, how unattractive they find darker-skinned women. I mean, here's the thing. Even if you feel that way, why are you going to spread that? Mm -hmm. How do you think people are going to receive that? Mm -hmm. And we know how difficult it is to get a leg up, you know, in the black community, the lack of opportunity, what we're running from. (laughs) And then you're going to put that on us. Mm. And so, and when you can't speak your truth in a room then you feel like you have to hide yourself. It's very, it's like physically painful.
2: Mm. I, I, wanna, I wanna ask you a couple more questions about your father because I find that dynamic mm-hmm. so interesting. And you said something in the book, and I'm paraphrasing, but you said your father was an abuser who became a good partner. Yeah. In this era of cancer culture, some people couldn't even imagine that happening.
4: Can, can, can you explain? He did? Mm-hmm. And I think he always had it in him. I think he was wrestling. You know, I always feel like you got two people that you wrestle with, right? And it's who you feed. And I think he fed the more violent aspects of himself. I think he was running from a lot. But in the last several decades, I think since I was probably in my 20s, he helped my mom raise a lot of um, my relatives' children. Mm. And he loved my mother. He was always there, rubbing her feet, and towards the end of his life, and when I say towards the end, the last couple of days of his life, my mom would always say every single day he woke up, even when he was suffering from dementia towards the end, he would say, you know, May Alice, you know, I'm sorry about what I did to you. Wow. I'm sorry. I feel like that's everything. I mean, how many people do you know that even make amends, Mm -hmm. that even open their mouths? And I think that that, um, I I feel like that has to be acknowledged as an incredible character trait.
2: You also said in the book, your father passed and you never got the opportunity to find out what caused his trauma. Are are you still able to heal that part of your life without knowing that piece?
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, once again, I think the only race you can run is your own. You know, I didn't know that because he didn't make it known. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that is more his burden and not mine. I made the choice to forgive despite not knowing. And I think that's what love looks like. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, Bell Hook says, you know, that we're always wrestling with not feeling lovelessness. You know, if you're in any relationship, you know, you're going to have some hard conversations.
0: How, how did that affect you with other relationships, with you dating and, and viewing men? Did you look at men as something you didn't want to necessarily date, you didn't trust because you've seen how your dad... Yes, but I, you know, yes, absolutely.
4: Yeah. And I think it's a never-ending narrative out there. You don't trust men. You know they're cheaters, they're liars, you know, this is all all they want from women. absolutely. It's a constant sort of stream of consciousness in the minds of women. and then when 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 women get together, we share our <laughs> our jerk stories, <laughs> you know, he did this to me, girl, yeah, well, he did this to me, and blah 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 blah, blah blah. No one <laughs> could find a good man. That's what the narrative out there is. No one. And I remember when I met my husband, Julius, who I prayed for, mm-hmm. and I prayed for him specifically. <laughs> I remember when I met him, I went to my therapist. I said, I don't know. I don't know about him. Mm-hmm. And my therapist said, oh, why? He seems really, really nice. I said, I know he does seem really, really nice. Something is wrong, though. <laughs> what do you think it is? I don't know, but it's something. And then I remember her saying, Viola, there will be something wrong. Because he's human.
1: Mm. Mm.
4: He's not perfect. So if you're looking, you're going to find it. But that doesn't mean he's not the person you should be with.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And that, once again, a portal, right? Mm. That you're meeting you, your imperfect self, who wants to be forgiven, who wants to be understood, is you're meeting another imperfect person. That wants to be understood. And at some point you have to make the decision
0: to love or not love. Does that make you overprotective with your daughter now? Because you've seen so much. And now your daughter's at an age where she's, you know, starting to be a teenager. And yeah. And starting to like boys or, or yeah. whoever? And Yeah. Yes.
4: Yes. But I know how hard life is. So I know I'm throwing her into, I, I, I feel that that's one of the things that happens when you have a kid. That you want to protect them. And then the next thought is you can't.
0: Mm. That's tough. That is hard. Yeah. That's, we, the, we, that's the, yeah. we, we both have four daughters, so we know. Yeah, that's that's what yeah, I talked to my both therapist have four about. So yeah, because
2: my daughter's at the age now yep. thirteen when she's mm-hmm. telling me I'm controlling, but I'm really in my mind I'm just being protective.
4: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I tell my daughter, no one is gonna love you like Mama loves you. Not even the love of your life. So as long as we get that out of the way, <laughs> that's why I talk to you like this. That's right.
5: Have you uh, had some conversations with your mom before this book came out about? Yes. Because I know you, I, I saw you talking to Oprah about that. So even afterward, like after she read it, what did she say?
4: My mom has not read it yet. Um, but I talk to my mom all the time mm-hmm. about it. Once again. There are qualities I love in my parents that probably are not the qualities that I elevated. And the quality that I love in my mom is, she likes to tell the truth. Mm. And I know that that sounds like really simple, but there's not a lot of people who like telling the truth. A lot of people are very comfortable with telling a great, beautiful lie. Mm. She's not afraid of that, of leaning in. And so I talked to her, her. I like my relationship with my mom now as an adult because I can ask her some pretty racy questions. <laughs>
2: yeah, I want to ask you about a quote, and, and it came from a, a sit-down with your mom when you was telling her, I guess, when you first... About the first... When you was experiencing abuse, you told her for the first time about all the mm-hmm. abuse you experienced, and you said success pales in comparison to healing. Yeah. Could
4: you expound on that? Yeah. That... I think, you know, the point in... um the, the book, when I, when I wrote that, and it took me a long time to write that part, is I mention that you know, I'm living in this big house. I'm, I'm definitely floor. living the American dream or whatever. And I think that people feel like once you hit that, then that's it. Every, your life is sown, you've made it. And it's not it. I think that's man-made mm-hmm. meaning. The real meaning is healing. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's healing from the wounds. It's the journey to healing, especially because, you know, once I told her that, once again, I expected a response that I would see on Thursday night lineup on ABC. <laughs> and how can you expect that with something as complicated as sort of any kind of sexual assault that happens within families? In this instance, my brother. And I'm telling my mother this. And this person, this brother, came out of her body. Right. Mm. There's a simplicity in which we approach humanity. And I think that human beings are way more complicated than that. So um, the path to healing is difficult, but for me, it's everything. Mm-hmm. It's not healing or healing has been the one thing that has gotten in the way of everything in my life. Either gotten in the way of it or has released it. Ability ability hasn't even released things in my life. Awards haven't released anything in my life. Healing and whatever has happened, happening in, in, internally in me, has been everything. Has been the driving narrative of of my entire fifty-six years,
2: do you think you can ever get to a place of wholeness? I, you I, mean, I, I talk to my therapist about this. I'm not. I don't think you do. I think you, because you, will have triggers, right? You'll think you're you know. fine with something, mm-hmm. and then next thing you know, you're triggered by it later on. You think you ever get to a place of? Wholeness?
4: And I talk about that with mm-hmm. memories. Mm-hmm. That memories are deathless. I don't know what that means. I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm whole. I do. But I feel like life is an absolute journey. Mm-hmm. Just like you don't know how many people are gonna love you, you don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. Right. And you don't know how you're gonna react to it. You know? And once again, Thursday night lineup on ABC. I think everybody wants a TV response. I don't think that life is a destination. Life is about uh, driving the car, and sometimes your tank is completely full, sometimes your tank is empty, and you're standing by the car. Waiting, you know, for AAA to come and get you some gas. Mm-hmm. Sometimes your tank is a quarter full. You're constantly, you're constantly learning. You're constantly in process. But you hope for my, one of my favorite gro- uh, quotes is, I don't know the definition of grace, only that it meets you where you are and doesn't leave you how it found you. Mm. You want some grace in your life,
1: mm-hmm.
4: you know, because you're never going to arrive
0: perfectly at any place. That's right. Now I heard you talk, you talk about life and you talk about what defines our life. Right. And you mm-hmm. mentioned TVs, mentioned bad experiences, mm-hmm. past relationships, you know, and I also heard you talk about trying to change that narrative so we have more positive experiences yeah. in our life. How do we do that? You know
4: what? Uh, First of all, I always get asked the hard hard questions. I think by unpacking your baggage and examining your life, slowly but surely, but uh, examining it with love, because I think that how you love defines your life. I really do. I believe the people you come in contact with and how you love and your, your willingness to connect to them defines your life. If you talk to anyone who's passed and anyone that you've been in contact with that leaves a lasting impression on your life, it's people that literally in that moment of time that you saw them, even if it were just a minute or five years or 20 years or a week, they loved you. They wanted to connect with you. They wanted to leave something in you. I think that's what defines it. And it's like Brene Brown says, you are only as connected to other people as you are to yourself. That's real. And a lot of people are not connected to themselves. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It, it's too much work. But um, I want to be. I do. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do. Are you, are you searching for a new
2: calling? Because you know in the book you talk about how acting was your calling. And you know, like now mm-hmm. at this moment, do you feel like you're
4: searching for a new calling? Maybe. Maybe I'm searching for a new calling. Someone said that I'm searching for agency. (laughs) You know? I'm probably searching for that too. You know what I think I'm searching for? A life where I'm not leading it with so much fear.
5: Mm -hmm. Mm. You talk about that a lot too. You don't want that to be the five words... That anybody could say.
4: Yeah, you still you're still leading with fear at this point. Oh, I think, yeah, I think I have fear. But I mean, I know we
2: have fear, but are you leading with fear?
4: I, I I don't know how much I'm leading. There are times, sometimes I do, I do. I, I'm in the public eye. Mm-hmm. You know, I I have one misstep, and it's it's out there. Listen, I, I don't have the bandwidth for that. I'm not I don't have the DNA for that. I I don't. And I don't I don't really think anyone does. Right. And if someone does, I don't believe you. I agree <laughs> with you on
5: that. People, I don't believe you. Cuz people act like when you are when you become famous or a celebrity yeah. that you're supposed to understand this is what comes with it and anybody yeah. can say anything about you. Absolutely. But I also feel like it does still hurt and it's still not yes, absolutely. easy. I'm and it's not still, made of Teflon. Right, and it still does Make you have some type of fear sometimes to take a risk or take a chance because you already know that, you know, people potentially will come at you every Absolutely. time you put yourself out there.
4: Fear of exposure, fear of, fear of failure, fear of all of that. But like I said last night, the one thing I will say about myself is it's like they say, courage is just fear said with prayers mm. that I'm still willing to jump. That's what I found out about the young Viola. Even when she was running from the bullies and sticking up her male finger, <laughs> <laughs> even when she, she was still running, she was still fighting. She was a survivor.
0: and um but the fear is still there. You talk you, about critics, too. And, and what's your opinion on critics? I, I think you had an interesting take when you talked about critics and people critiquing your work.
4: well, i I believe that once again, My quote was taken out of context, (laughs) might I add. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing, Mm -hmm. when you're an actor, to be a geek for 10 seconds or 20 seconds, when you're an actor, you create a character based on a human being, okay? You cannot be an actor in your room. You could be a painter in your room, you can't be an actor. You can't put on your resume, I played King Lear in the basement of my (laughs) apartment in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. You need an audience, you need a director, you need a script, you need all of that. It's a collaborative art form that requires a lot of different artists to make it work. Okay? So if you're not contributing to the work mm-hmm. and the enlightenment of the work, then the only thing you're doing is hurting. You're destroying. You're not wakening people up. If you're not approaching it with, with an artistic aesthetic, then the only thing that you're doing is what someone is doing, I don't know, on a takedown page. And if you're taking someone down, it's hurtful. And people need to know that there's someone on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. Even with a failed performance or performance you did not like, that, that that has nothing to do with taking someone down. That does not give you the license to take someone down. You just don't like it. <laughs> so that's all I meant with critics. I'm not saying... I, I would never say that anyone is worthless. I would never say that. that. That's not even my style, even in private. I don't say that. You could talk to my people, okay? Mm-hmm. But... If you're serving an artistic uh, purpose,
0: absolutely. But if you're not, you're just on a path to destruction. Did Michelle Obama reach out to you at all? Because she's so connected to the culture. Did her people reach out to you and say...
4: N- no, and she doesn't... Listen, Michelle Obama is an absolute goddess. Mm. Can we agree on that? Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> she doesn't have to reach out. She has a much higher calling, okay, That that is... Bigger than social media, than pop culture, there is something higher that she has to protect, you know. And um, and I recognize that, and I I respect that greatly. In,
2: in in the my calling chapter, you know, when you talk about acting, you know, even though you found your calling, it still seemed you were dealing with imposter syndrome. Yeah. Was was, was did have you gotten over
4: that? No. Mm. Mm-hmm. No. And and here's the thing. Once again. Social media has bogarted the whole definition of what it means to be an artist. And so everyone feels like being an artist is, you know, you gotta look the part, you gotta know what designers to wear, you gotta know what directors you wanna work with, and all of that. That has nothing to do with being an actor. Actors have a 95% unemployment rate. Less than 1% of the profession makes $50,000 a year or more, 0.04% are famous. Okay, and and here's the thing about actors, too. (laughs) You always want to be better, Mm -hmm. especially if you have, especially if you want to be excellent and you finally see your work. You're always thinking about something you could have done different. Everybody does it and everybody's afraid of being found out. It's just a part of what we do. I'm not saying it keeps you up at night. I'm not saying that it destroys you, I'm saying that it's sort of, and you know what, I think that everyone who has a higher image uh, of their work, uh, what they want to do, everyone has it. Writers have it, I'm sure you have it to a certain extent, of always wanting to be better. Even when someone says, oh you were great, you're like, okay thank you, but I could have done that one scene better.
5: What role did you have you think was closest to perfection for you? closest to it not saying it was perfect but for yourself you feel like this is the one that was like I killed it more than anything
4: you know that's a hard one you know what I'm gonna say and I and I, I don't know why I keep cu- it was very very small role that I had to and um get on up with Chadwick Boseman I played his mother mm. I enjoyed that role <laughs> mm yeah she has oh, two
0: more minutes, guys. Oh, man. Oh, you know what There's I wanted so to tell you? Stuff. I
5: saw Godfrey yesterday. He said you guys were roommates for yeah, a hot we second yeah. coming up. <laughs> he was like, You're going to see Viola Davis. He was like, Make sure you mention, um, you know, we were roommates for. He said it was some crazy situation where, like, there was a lot of people living in There's
4: the... a lot of people. It was a very big apartment, Upper West Side. Yep. How many were living in the apartment? There was only four of us oh, living God. in the apartment. There was a... Yeah. <laughs> you had a lot of crazy yeah. living
5: arrangements trying to... I you sure did.
4: And that was yeah, one man. of them.
2: <laughs> okay. Let me, let me get two questions this since we, we're about to go. But you spoke about out-of-body out experiences in the book. Yep. And, you know, you had them when you were younger. I totally understand that because I had those too. But what do you think those experiences were trying to show us about ourselves?
4: Just the infinite power we have hmm. in our minds. In, in, infinite power to transport ourselves to explore our imagination which is an infinite field where we can redefine, reimagine um, and the power to um, relieve ourselves of the burden sometimes of negativity Mm. Um, that everything we have is within ourselves that's what it it taught me now I can't do it anymore. So I don't know what that means. Yeah, it seemed like a thing that, that happened when you was young. When you get older, it, it don't happen anymore. Exactly. I guess you know when I, you know, the world gets at you, mm-hmm. and the world begins to put up barriers around your life and boundaries that you didn't have when you were younger. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, but I think that's what it teaches you is that everything you have, you have within you.
2: And, and the secret, silent shame, why that, that chapter, why do you think we as black people think we're doing ourselves a favor by keeping secrets?
4: For me, and it's just my opinion, I feel, especially as a black woman, that if I think shame is a big thing with black folk, and I think it's post-traumatic slave syndrome, that there's a lot of things that we weren't allowed to do Look a white man in the eye, smile, look at a white woman. (laughs) Um, There's so many things that we were punished for. Um, But more importantly, as a black woman, I feel like a lot of times when I keep things in, it's because I know I'm not going to be protected. Mm -hmm. I know that there's not going to be anyone out there that's going to rescue me.
1: Mm.
4: Um, And I'm not saying... I'm saying, I'm not saying that I need rescuing, but you know what? We need each other. Absolutely. We really do. And the lack of adoration, the lack of protection makes you keep things within and makes you try to just muster through and and strong back, even if you're broken inside. Mm -hmm. Mm. And and who cares about the inner pain of black folk? Mm. You better care. Because certainly the culture in the past has not cared. And, um, and we have an aversion to therapy as black folk. I think that's changing, though. I do think it's changing, changing too. I completely agree with you. Um, but
0: I think that's why we keep things in. Finding me is out right now. We always yeah. ask everybody Mount Rushmore of actors when they come. <laughs> we do. Who is your Mount Rushmore? Oh, I don't no. do that with Yes. No. Just <laughs> her, her favorite. Who is the Mount Rushmore
4: oh of actors to you, People that Tyson. you
0: Tyson?
4: <laughs> yeah, Miss Tyson. I talked to her <laughs> three hours before she passed. That's that's wow. just she's wow. she was everything to me. I'm sorry. And that performance, to me, goes down as one of the greatest performances ever in the history of cinema. I still, I don't even think they write roles like that anymore for actors, especially black actors, you know. So, absolutely. And as far as black actors, you know, I'd say this, and I know Denzel probably is going to roll his eyes, but I'm sorry. I'm a friend and a fan. I think Denzel is fantastic.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
4: Great. But there's a lot of great actors out yeah. there. I love Can't actors. So oh, like actors. That. There you go. Well, and, I, and, I mean, and, listen,
5: I, and there's so many great topics in this book that I know we can go mm-hmm. in depth on at a later time. Fibroids, that's a topic we're always talking about up mm-hmm. here with yeah. black women. I know you have the docuseries um, Hung, Hungry for Answers yep. that I'm excited to talk about, too. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully we'll get to continue the conversation yeah, about absolutely. those things, too. And, and, and I love how you
2: end the book, because I've never heard somebody talk about their eight-year-old self protecting them now. Mm-hmm. It's always the other way around. Mm-hmm. So I would. I, I just want to know how you even got to that point where you feel like the eight-year-old you is protecting you now.
4: A therapist told me that. Mm. He said, I don't think you need to heal the eight-year-old. I think the eight-year-old was pretty tough. Mm-hmm. She
2: was a good cussler. You were a good customer you know. Like, <laughs> I, I, I know. to the Audible version, I'm like, yo, you like Samuel L. Jackson level yeah.
4: cussing. <laughs> you know I love it, right?
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations yes. on congratulations
0: everything that you have me. going on. So. It's out right you. now. Amazing. Pick it up. It's Viola Davis. It's the Breakfast Club Good Morning.